Welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. I'm David Robertson. And I'm Christopher Carter. And we are brought to you with the assistance of the BASR, the British Association for the Study of Religions, but more about that after the interview. First, who have we got today? And today we've got uh, another interview with Martin Lepage speaking with Anna Fideli on religion, gender and corporeality. Take it away, Martin. I am here today at uh, the ISSR conference in uh, Louvain-la-Neuve-Belgium with um, Anna Fideli Fideli, um, to to talk about uh, gender and religion uh, today. Anna, how are you? Fine, thank you. Thank you for meeting me today at this very busy conference for the whole week. Um, Anna, who's with me today, earned her PhD in social and cultural anthropology from the École des Hautes Hautes Études en Sciences Sociales in Paris and at the Universidad Autonoma de Barcelona. She is a senior researcher of the Center uh, for Research in Anthropology at the Lisbon University Institute and is a associate researcher um, at uh, the Centre d'études en sciences sociales du religieux, which is in where? Paris. In Paris as well. Um, like I said today, we're going to talk about gender, uh, religion, and uh, corporeality. Uh, you are um, you have published uh, in 2013 uh, a book uh, entitled "Looking for Mary Magdalene: Alternative Pilgrimage and Ritual Creativity at Catholic Shrines in France." Yeah. Uh, you have also published with Kim Knibe, uh, Gender and Power in Contemporary Spirituality, Ethnographic Approaches, which we will touch on a little bit more during this interview. And you have, I don't know if it's done yet, but you also have coordinated a um, uh, an issue to a social compass about uh uh, the uncertainty in vernacular religions mm-hmm. is is that completed yes it is out already it has been published by social compass which is the journal of this association right. here and is in both in french and english excellent and you have also worked with sabina magliocco uh, on an issue of journal of ritual studies ritual creativity emotions and the body these are all publications that are very pertinent to what we're going to talk about today. And this is where I want to go with uh, this uh, interview. Uh, First of all, let me ask you maybe a very basic question that might not be that basic when you think about it. What is gender? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well... uh for me, at least, when when I start uh, my research, I for me the the basic thing is fieldwork. 
So for me, it is very important not to impose an idea of what is gender upon the social actors, but to try to find out what gender means for the social actors. Because what happens today is that, uh, I'm just to make a concrete example, I'm doing fieldwork in Portugal right now about uh, spiritual mothers, which is uh, women who choose alternative mothering practices like long-term breastfeeding or home birth. And um, these women, and for them, uh, these choices have a spiritual connotation. They consider that uh, childbirth and um, breastfeeding and the first three years are a moment of, of strong in, in connection between the baby and the mother. And uh, they have to, and it has also, it is a period that has a very strong spiritual meaning. So many of them have been to universities. Some of them have even studied anthropology, so they have read texts about gender, about texts by Judith Butler about queer theory. And so, for instance, one I interviewed some days ago had even just read the paper of a, a conference on motherhood in Menuth that I, I had want, wanted to attend. So it's really like you're speaking to them, and it is not that you are the anthropologist and you know what gender is and they don't. So what I'm trying to figure out is what they consider to be gender. Um, and very often for them, I note that when they talk about gender, they talk about women, mm -hmm. which is not necessarily, uh, I mean, gender is not only about women, it is about women, men, and also about those who do not identify with these categories. And, uh, <clears throat> and I think also I, what I found also that for them, gender is also related with in engendering, with the fact of procreating. So uh, my, my basic um, answer is that uh, um, for me, gender, I, I, I of course, you, we know the classical theories, but I always try to understand what gender means for, for, um, for the, the people I study, and especially the kind of gender images they received from their mothers and from their Catholic context. Mm -hmm. In that sense, what connections can you make a little bit uh, deeper between uh, how religion and gender intersect. Uh, does gender influence religion? Does religion influence gender and how they are both experienced? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I really like uh, Meredith McGuire's idea that religion is always embodied. Uh, in the sense that uh, religion is really experienced through the body. It is not only in our heads or in the books. It is something that, that is in our body. First of all, because certain initiation rites include uh, our body. I think, for instance, about circumcision or even baptism or like in, in many cases for the first communion, the, the, the girls pierce their ears. So it is something that can even be traumatic for yeah. for the body. Um, so I think that in my case, I'm really much interested about how gender influences religion, but most of all, how, how religion influences gender and how religion in some way, especially established religion, try to regulate gender and try to regulate also sexuality. 
and uh, try to make sure that the, in some way the sexuality of women and their reproductive capacities are in some way uh, controlled or at least regulated by some rules or some stereotypes. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm just coming from Lisbon where I'm doing intensive fieldwork with the spiritual mother, so I will make an example from my fieldwork. For instance, in, uh, I will also present a paper about this here at this conference. For instance, in Portugal, when a woman is pregnant, everybody says, está num estado de graça. She is in a state of grace. So you can see that already she's in some way incorporating this Catholic idea of grace and also this Catholic idea of the Mother Mary being pregnant and uh, this pregnancy as being something without no problems, no blood, uh, no conception, and no, se no sex, sexual intercourse mm -hmm. even, you know. But what happens here again, why I'm saying that we have to be careful with what we, with, with, uh, with uh, the informants, is that many people, I found, have read Marina Warner's book, Alone of All Her Sex, in which she uh, analyzes the negative effects of uh, the Immaculate Virgin Mary on women. Because basically what happens is that uh, the Virgin Mary in Catholicism represents an ideal that is unattainable for for a woman, because women can either choose to be nuns, so they are virgins like Mother Mary, and they are pure, or but they are not mothers, so they mm -hmm. don't fulfill the main task of womanhood for Catholicism, or they can be mothers, but at that point they are stained by sexuality, so they are no longer virgins. This is why they are considered, the, the title of your book is Looking for Mary Magdalene, and that sense is... Is there a connection there? Yeah, yeah, because um, the pilgrims I followed find in Mary Magdalene a sort of substitute because she is a woman who does not have a partner, or at least uh, in the Gospels it is not clear. She is not. Uh, she's the only woman in the Bible, the only important female figure who is not associated with any man because all other figures are either the sister of uh, Joseph or the mother of uh, James or the wife of. So I, <laughs> I used to say that I really like Mary Magdalene because she's out of control, you know, there is no man there. And actually what happened is that with the Da Vinci Code, somebody again tried to put a man on her side. This, this time it is the, the best man, it is Jesus Christ, but it is still a man. And some of the pilgrims I, I interviewed were very... Uh, angry because these were women with, without children and they said you know they steal our archetype we had an archetype of a woman who was uh, sexual and she w had no partner and she has no kids and now they tell us that she's married with Jesus and she has children <laughs> so I think it's, it's very it's very interesting to follow all these things and to see how even a book that presents itself, like the Da Vinci Code, as being related to God's spirituality and as being feminist, finally reproduces this old stereotype of the great woman that is on the side of the great, great man, but she cannot be great on her own. Mm -hmm. So, uh, going back to, to these pregnant women, I think that, I mean, if you're constantly told you're in a state of grace, 
Uh, this uh, this this is a, a problem because uh, very often I, inter- I just interviewed a woman. She said very often you are not in a state of grace. You're <laughs> vomiting. You're full of doubts, and you have this this social pressure that is particularly strong because it is related with this Catholic idea that the woman has to be ever patient and ever giving and uh, always sacrificing. And so at some point she even says. The, the 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 idea of this virgin mother is a horror, you know. So there is really this 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 dichotomy, you know. It is no longer a bliss; it is it is a horror. And I think that um, that these these kind of messages that we incorporate are very strong because very often we do not notice them. Uh, for instance, I was I was I grew up in a very Catholic area uh, of Italy, which is South Tyrol, but I was not baptized, and my I did not receive a Catholic education. But for instance, my mother, when I had longer hair, used to say, "You look like a repentant Magdalene." So you see, even if I was not baptized, still these images came, you know. Or uh, there, there are many sayings in Italian that that are related to to, to religion. In Spanish, it's she's weeping like a Magdalene. So it's like, uh, especially in in this in the context of of of, of pregnancy and sexuality, there are all these uh, these um, ways of saying that uh, re- really mark you. Because uh, if when you are pregnant, you are in a state of grace then you are not allowed to be angry, you are not allowed, uh, also probably you will feel strange if you have sex, because if you are in a state of grace and you are like the virgin, this can create problems. And these these women I am interviewing, they are really struggling with this ideal of the ideal mother, uh, of the perfect mother, and their real life, where they are humans, and, and it is just, a ch- pregnancy is a very challenging experience, and also childbearing. And um, at the same time, I, I also ask myself if all these uh, theories about long-term breastfeeding and attachment parenting are not influenced by this idea of being the perfect mother, you know? Yes. Uh, it is not that I'm saying that they are wrong or something, but I think that we have still in the Western culture this strong ideal of the mother as, as being good and... and uh, and in this interview, this, this woman also speaks about the shadow of, of the mother, which is all the negative emotions and thoughts related which to motherhood. Which is not talked about, yeah, which, is which is put is, aside. Yeah, which is uh, put aside. And how she, hmm. she feels that she would like that, that you could talk more about it. About the darker sides of yeah. this, this aspect of what a woman is or could be. Yeah, exactly. Excellent. Hmm. Okay, well, in that sense, um, Anna, um, on what level do you look at these things? Do you look at the level of identities? Do you look at this course? Do you look at ritual? How do you observe how gender is, well, how gender creates this normativity? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that I look at all three. I look at the identity of the woman, but what I what I'm doing, and this is something I did also for my Mary Magdalene book, is that I work with life stories. I think that life stories are very important, and that it is very important to create um, 
a good relationship with the women you interview. This means that you don't meet them only for the interview, but you go to activities with them before, because, and, and you share also things related to your own life. And uh, the, the ideal, in my case, for instance, I have a small daughter, so you have also the kids playing together, and you really feel that when you are not, it's not that I am interviewing her, it is we are sharing, like you and me here, you know? And in this case, in, and, and, and you make sure also to, to, to tell the woman that you will change her name and that if it is necessary, and this will be necessary in Portugal for sure, you will not tell her whole life story because otherwise many people will recognize her, you know, because Portugal is a very small uh, country. And in these alternative uh, circuits, everybody knows each other. So, uh, and also what I do is that I always uh, tell them that before publishing something, I will send them so that they can decide maybe there is some part they want to take out because it is just too personal. So once I have done all this, I start speaking with them and I, I try first, in the case, for instance, of motherhood, I try to, to trace back their own experience as children and the experience of their mothers and, if possible, also the experience of their grandmothers. Because I think that, I mean, the way in which you... When, when, when a baby is born, also a mother and a father are born. And uh, this mother that is born is not born out of nothing. She has a, a whole baggage about that contains knowledge about what it is to be a mother, what is a good mother, what is a bad mother. And what I'm finding is that lot, a lot of these meanings are related to religion. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I said again, this myth of this perfect patient mother or of mothers who rejected completely this model and were completely different. Mm. Uh, and what I'm finding also, that is something I found also in my Mary Magdalene book, is that women who are so concerned about motherhood because they read a lot and they want to make sure that their kids have a different experience from the one they had when they were children, even if not all of them say will describe it in this way, this is something that emerges a lot. Um, very often these women had problematic experience with motherhood. This means that either they had uh, cases of abortion or miscarriage themselves, or their mothers had it, or uh, their mothers grew up without a, a mother. This happened a lot in Portugal, where there were many children and sometimes some children were given away to, to, a, to an aunt who, who could not have children or things like that, or, or the mother died, or, 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 things, or, or they had to move to the colonies and some kids stayed in Portugal to have a better future, or things like that. So uh, I think that this is very important if you want to understand in terms of gender and what, 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 how these women understand uh, motherhood. And in terms of, of uh, religion, um, I think that it's, uh, it's also important. Uh, I mean, I think that it is important to consider religion not necessarily as rituals or as prayers said, but as a whole set of values that are passed on from mother to child. So the idea that the mother must always be, be there for the child or... Uh, 
the fact that the mother is the center of, of the family and, uh, and things like that. And also the fact that women who, for instance, decided to abandon their children, in this case, not the mothers I interview, but the, the, their, their, their mothers, the, the grandmothers of the baby, let's say, they felt an enormous guilt because of this uh, religious idea of the family, the unity of the family and the importance of the family and of the, of the mother. And, um, and also, we have to think that until very recently, abortion was not legal in Portugal. So this is another... How recent? I think it passed in 2004 or something like this. I, I can tell you exactly. Okay. But uh, Still. for sure after 2000. Okay. There was a first referendum and it didn't pass in the 90s and then there was a second one so I mean they had to go to, to do abortion in illegal uh, clinics and so it was really something difficult so in that way uh, gender is part of a tradition um, so you can say that it is essentially something that is cultural It's a church. <laughs> Religion is everywhere. You see. Uh, I didn't understand the question properly. I, think. I was asking you, in, in that sense, um, religion, uh, no, gender is something that is passed on through tradition. So gender is basically something that is cultural and not... Uh, when you hear uh, your informants talk about their experience, it's less something that is an essence of the body and more something that is cultural? Well, I think that they struggle because they are divided. They feel things in their body that often are in contradiction with the values they receive from the culture. Hmm? And also they read in books because we, they, are, they, are, they read a lot. And uh, there are many manuals about how to be a good mother and so on. So it doesn't necessarily come only from their family or from their uh, milieu. Uh, but uh, then there is what they feel in their own bodies. And very often there is this, this contrast. As we said, this woman who said, they all tell me, Ah, you're in a state of grace, you're pregnant, you are so beautiful, you must be so happy. And inside yourself you feel angry and, uh, and, you, know, and, and you are not happy at all and you're full of doubts and you are scared. So um, also this, this idea that some of them, for instance, some women at some point decided to, to, have, to have an abortion. So uh, they, it is not that they embrace motherhood in any, uh, whatever kind of motherhood. And, and it is not that they reject uh, abortion. Because in many, uh, many colleagues, for instance, ask me uh, whether they are against abortion, and they assume that they are against abortion because motherhood for them is so important. But they are not. Because, in fact, there is a contrast between this, this Catholic background and this overall idea that abortion is bad, And then what they feel in their body, and 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 what and what they and the kind of agency they want to reclaim. Hmm? 
The problem is that I find that every time they want to reclaim their agency, they, they fell on an, an enormous sense of guilt. They feel an enormous sense of guilt. And during the interviews, I always have to make sure that they, f they feel that I'm open about it. And I, I very often share also my own experiences, very generally. I don't want to influence them, but to make sure that they feel that I'm not judging them. And I'm all, I was. We were also saying your original question was if I if I study the individual or the discourse or the ritual. So I spoke about the individuals and I said that I studied the individual, but the life story in general, also the family story. But I also focus a lot on discourse. For instance, something that is really interesting is that some people, some women say, "Nos quedamos gravidos," which means we got pregnant which is my partner and I, we got pregnant. So I think this is, uh, for me, an interesting change and a welcome change, because it, it feels that pregnancy is something that involves also men. And uh, some men wanted to, to speak to me as well, so I did some interviews also with fathers. And, they really, uh, and uh, there was also this idea that uh, I probably will have to do a different research on that, but that for them, the whole pregnancy and, and, and fatherhood is also an identity process, and that if they decide to be very active in this process, this is very challenging for them because they get criticized and also because they have no positive uh, role models because their fathers were, were very different. They didn't train nappies. And uh, just to give uh, a short example, sorry, I have to give this example. When I became pregnant, uh, I said, okay, I was in Portugal, I will give it a try. They say that the, the system here is not very good, the health system, but I will give it a try at least. So I went with my partner and uh, this doctor visited me and while they were taking my, the, the nurse was taking my blood pressure, he, he told my partner, you know, once the child is born, you do not have to get, get, give in. Remember that it is she who changes the nappies. You know? <laughs> and at that point, yeah. the nurse said, doctor, you know, you have to stop with these discourses because the blood pressure is too high. <laughs> <laughs> But this is just, you know, to give you an idea, of course, this was an, a, a, a senior doctor and things are changing. I'm not saying that all doctors are like this in Portugal. But I spoke with other mothers and they told me, yes, this is, was a strange person, but this is by no way an exception. It happens. Hmm? The majority, the discourse is something that is very, uh, that is everywhere in popular culture in, gen in general, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it is. he felt at least that he could say something like this, whereas in other countries probably uh, he would have been afraid of saying something like this because this could have uh, consequences. Mm -hmm. And um, so it is about discourse, the kind of, of words that are, that are used, uh, very often, for instance, uh, you can, through the, the, the words that are used, you can see uh, if they feel guilty, for instance. This is something I feel a lot. When I speak to women, they tell me, you know, I ask them, how long have you been breastfeeding? 
and sometimes they do not know if I'm okay with long-term breastfeeding or not. Or mm. they, they are afraid that I accuse them that they didn't breastfeed enough. So uh, from the words they choose, you can understand what their position is and also on which part of the spectrum they feel guilty because they didn't breastfeed enough or, or they did uh, breastfeed maybe too much for some people. And um, I also think that it is important to, to analyze the discourses of critique because um, in this I am influenced by Elizabeth Claveri and her discourse of, of the critical capacity of authors. I'm, I'm really convinced that uh, people who make choices make these choices because they, they thought about it. It's not that they just read something in a book and they do it. They put it to the test, and especially in contemporary spirituality, this is really much an issue. People all are always invited to put to the test things. And uh, so if, if a mother who went to university and studied anthropology chooses to be a stay-at-home mother, for sure she thought about it for a long, long time. It is not just a choice she, she made. And, uh, and I think it's very interesting to analyze this course and to see what, what she's saying of herself. For instance, she says, I'm not working, and then you, I'm, I'm, a stay, I'm, I'm not working, I'm staying at home. So first, first of all, you see, okay, you stay at home, but you are working a lot when you stay at home with two kids. Secondly, you also see that she's doing actually translations and she's doing other things and she's gaining some money. So it's really that this idea, even if she rejects the criticism of others saying uh, women should be working even if they have kids, she rejects it, but at the same time she incorporates that idea that staying at home she's not working, which is not true either. So I think this is it's very important to... to to go deeper, to dig deeper, and not just accept, she says, okay, I am a stay-at-home mother. But another element that comes in here is time. The problem is that our academia is evolving. We do not have time to do this quality field work. I mean, I am I'm happy because I, have a, I had six years of postdoc, and now I have a research position of five years. But, uh, I mean, some, some colleagues tell me that this is a sort of academic suicide I'm making because I'm not going on in the, you know, in the, in the hierarchy. But the problem is that if you're teaching and you are applying for a project, you don't have time to do all this fieldwork. And in order to get to know these women better and to do all these interviews and ha managing to get women with two kids show up at an interview is really difficult, you know. I mean, to make one interview, you have to normally to wait at least two or three weeks because there is always something happening. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this is, this is also important that very often you, you don't get, have the time to, to, to recollect all this material and make this discourse analysis and, and check, okay, she says this, but then she says this other thing that is in contrast. So this is another problem about discourse. Regarding the, the rituals, uh, in this case, it is a bit more difficult because I could not be present at the rituals because many of them were related to childbirth, like the burying of the placenta. It is something very personal, and I, I would not want even to, uh, to be there because I would feel like uh, I'm, I'm disturbing. 
Um, but I cannot at least hear the stories and the ritual narratives. Of course, it's not the same than being there, but uh, it's, it is interesting as well. But in the meantime, I mean, you could be there, but you won't be able to experience what the mother is experiencing. So in that way, there's a limited amount of information or, or data or experience to get from that. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I wanted to get a little bit more uh, into the relationship between emic and ethic, which is something that, that you wrote about um, in gender and power in contemporary spirituality, the importance of uh, understanding uh, the insider's point of view and put that into perspective with an ex- an outsider point of view. Uh, you spoke a little bit earlier about the importance of gaining trust and uh, entertaining a relationship with the informant uh, in order to get uh, information that is the most complete and that gives uh, at the same time uh, that Uh, that leaves the power in the hand uh, of the informant of the people that that you meet. Um, how does that relate to uh, an experience of gendered religion or um, religious experiences of gender? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that, uh, of course, I, I, I kind of try to share the power with the informant, but it is then clear that I get the data and I analyze them. But what I usually do is that that I send them the manuscript, and uh, also very often because, I mean, I, I do the, 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 the interviews in a language that is not mine, in, usually in Portuguese, but some are in French in this case, And uh, so I want to be sure that I really, I understood well what the person is, uh, is saying. And, uh, and sometimes people do not agree with the whole analysis, but they agree that it is respectful and that uh, it is, it is uh, fine. And in general, I must admit that sometimes they don't care. They just check the, the facts about their life story and they, then they are not so much interested about the, the analysis which is, was unexpected for me, at least in the case of looking for Mary Magdalene, but it's fine. I feel that I, I did my, my part. And um, I'm not sure I understand what you mean by this power relation in, in terms of gender. Uh, what I meant is, um, since we can understand now that gender is something that is social and cultural, uh, how does that affect your perspective on emic and ethic? How do you deal with this distinction between you have to be an insider or you have to be an outsider? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, in, in a book I published in Spanish, in the introduction, I say it's about the fieldwork on Mary Magdalene. It's entitled El Camino de Maria Magdalena. It's my master thesis. Oh. I, I use this metaphor that I feel that I'm, wor- I'm, I'm walking on a sort of 
rope, and on the one side there are all the, my informants who are trying to tear me down from the rope so that I'm with them, and I say that what they do is great. And on the other side there are the academics who want me to be objective and at that point, when I was starting my PhD, they wanted me to tell that all this new age thing was, uh, you know, narcissism and middle class and uh, and uh, not really religion. Now things have changed, but back then in, in 2002, it was more or less like this. So I tried to be to walk on this rope <laughs> and tried to respect both sides and. Uh, I tried, yes, to take the emic discourses seriously, but at the same time not uh, to, to challenge them as well. So as we say in this book, Gender Empowered Contemporary Spirituality, okay, in contemporary spirituality, like for instance, in, uh, let's take the case of goddess spirituality, they say we are... We want to create a really uh, not. We don't want to create a religion because all religions have been patriarchal, as uh, Asa Trulson says in the opening of her chapter in the book. And we want this spirituality to be gender equal, no power issues. But the problem is that it is almost impossible to eliminate power and gender. They exist, and so uh, they show up at some point and. Uh, and it is interesting to see how these communities are struggling to overcome these power problems that happen, that show up. Because they say, okay, yes, there is a pilgrimage leader, but we are all the same. But at the same time, it is the pilgrimage leader who decides which places to visit and right. how long you stay in each place and which rituals you do. So, of course, there is an issue of, of power. And then there are also gender images that are passed on, because in the moment you say that, for instance, uh, menstruation is not um, sinful, it is not um, polluted, it is sacred. Uh, the problem is that, yes, you construct something almost in opposition to the, the Catholic view, but you don't get out of this dichotomy. I mean, uh, we, we discussed this in a forthcoming chapter with Kim Knibe regarding sexuality. You know? We say, okay, for the Catholic Church, sexuality outside marriage is sinful. And within God's spirituality, it is almost, they speak about sacred sexuality. But why does sexuality have to be either sacred or polluted? Can it just be sexuality, you know, can you just have sex for the sake of it? So the fact that you have to show that it is sacred and that therefore you are legitimated to have it shows that that you are trying to, to oppose Catholicism, but by this, through this process of opposition you are reproducing a certain schemes. I remember a woman I interviewed in her 50s who had learned that sexuality is dangerous and outside marriage it's not possible. And then she said, and then I found this workshop about, workshop about sacred sexuality. And I said, wow, if it is sacred, then I can, you know. So that's, uh, that's the whole point. I mean, we, we have to be careful. They say we are spiritual, not religious, but this does not mean that actually they are not religious at all. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and also, we have to be careful 
not to think that those who consider themselves as religious are uh, not having sex outside marriage or are following everything the Catholic Church is saying. So, uh, and then there are also local diversities, of course. We know that in Canada and Catholic churches, the gays are all admitted. Uh, this would be probably not possible in, in Rome. <laughs> so it's like uh, we have to be careful not to generalize. Yeah, yeah, this was uh, the Pope being angry <laughs> because of what I just said. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Well, maybe one final question um how do you see this perspective on gender and power how do you see it evolve in the future in religious studies how do you see that evolve thing where can it lead yeah well it is a big question for me at least i think that it would be very important that uh, religious scholars understand that in order to understand religion, you have to understand how people experience and live religion in the reality. Because religion, as such, exists only in the life of people. I mean, it, you can study the text, and then you, okay, you can do a sort of textual kind of work. But the religion that is there is, is in some way not alive. It is in the book. Whereas the what uh, Meredith McGuire calls lived religion, but we and I prefer actually co to call religion as lived, in order not to create a new label because we have already so many labels. Uh, I think that is very important to to study religion as lived, especially if you want to understand the relationship between gender, gender and religion, and even more if you want to understand the relationship between gender, religion, and corporeality. And something that I think is very important and that is not done enough is the use of life stories and of family stories. Because uh, in many cases there are wounds, there are sexual wounds, or there are religious wounds, like uh, negative experience with religion. And these experiences are very fundamental in understanding the, the religious choices people make. And again here, in order to do this, it is important to respect the other to de resolve power issues, not to think that you are the academic who knows and those are the poor guys who are just following a religion. And also, we need more time, because to do this kind of in-depth in fieldwork, you need time. And uh, for instance, now I, I, I will start a study on pilgrimage, pilgrimages to Fatima, And if I ever want these people to even consider me, I have to move there and live there at least some months. Because otherwise, I will ask them questions, and they will just give pre-prepared answers, and I will not get any important information. And for this, we, I think that we should really question the way in which academia is, is going each time more towards capitalism and, and this quickly publish, quickly finish your research, and so on. Thank you, Anna. That, that was amazing. <laughs> Thank you Thank very you. much. It was absolutely wonderful to hear Martin there talking about a subject um, with which he's got such familiarity, um, religion and gender in general, um, not something that we've 
really featured too heavily on the RSP. One of our first interviews, um, Jonathan Tuckett with Lisbeth Michelson was on religion and gender, but without the corporeality aspect of it. Indeed, we had um, wire women more religious than men. Yeah, with Marta Chebatowska. Indeed. Um, But this actually follows on quite well from uh, Martin's interview last week when he was talking about um, gender aspects of material religion. Exactly. Um, so thanks very much, Martin, and thanks for your uh, response to uh, Jenny Butler's interview as so, well. Yeah. As I mentioned at the top of the interview there, we're brought to you with the assistance of the BASR. But I'm pleased to announce today that from 2016, we'll also be brought to you with the assistance of the NAASR. Yeah, the North American Association for the Study of Religion. So... Um, we're absolutely delighted um, to, that they'll be joining um, the BASR as as a sponsor of the RSP, and we've already worked with uh, Nasser, you know, informally um, for a number of things over the years, and now this is it's really nice to formalise that. And obviously, we're ever grateful for the the financial assistance um, in making the RSP even better. And the financial assistance is only one small part of it. It's also great to be able to formalize a relationship with an organization like that um, with a very strong kind of critical agenda in the study of religion and uh, and work with these people a little more formally. And our relationship is kicking off uh, with them supporting us at the upcoming conference. Of the, the American Academy of Religion. At the, yeah. Yep, at the AAR uh, later this month um, and helping us out with rooms to record and setting us up with interviews with uh, some of their members. Yeah. So that's uh, that's great to be able to announce that. Yeah, very exciting. Um, next week, it's an interview that David uh, recorded with uh, Tomiko Masazawa. Indeed. Um, is this the first of my interviews to come from the IEHR? I believe it is, I think yes. so, yeah. I recorded a, a fair few there. Um, this one, um, Tomiko was... Uh, generous enough to chair our panel on um, afterworld religions, uh, which you will be hearing a lot more about in the new year. But while she was there, I couldn't help but uh, take the opportunity to sit down and have a talk with her. And um, instead of the world religions material, which we've covered a few times in the past with uh, Jim Cox and the afterworld religions kind of edited podcast that we did before, um, she gave us a little insight into her new um, project on the... Uh, the invention of the secular university, if you like. Mm. So uh, do come back next week yeah, to hear that. Be looking forward to that. Um, as ever, just don't forget about our Amazon links. They they bring in um, a not insignificant amount of revenue for us. So if you're on .co.uk.com or .ca, please keep using those. And do check out our social media feeds on um, Facebook and Twitter. But other than that, thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening.